0: there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 4. Oh god, it's fascism. Today's episode is a very special one, as we are going to be introduced to the crying and screaming elephant in the room of this era, the fascist ideology. This episode might wind up being a meandering mess, as for the past century, historians and political scientists have been trying to create a coherent definition of what fascism actually is. I do admit it kind of is a term that gets thrown, uh, thrown out a lot in the popular culture whenever authoritarianism gets a little uh, too enthusiastic with itself. But oppression is not an element specific to fascism. It is merely one of many possible characteristics. Fascism, in practice, is something of a political chameleon, eschewing formal doctrine and instead favoring exploiting whatever is happening in the political zeitgeist of that moment. This, of course, means it is particularly frustrating to pin it down in any concise manner. This is partly due to the ad hoc nature of how each fascistic movement got started, and also due to there being a pretty open anti-intellectual undercurrent common to the ideology as a whole. Take the comparison of communism, the arch-nemesis and mostly inverse ideology of fascism. It was born of intellectualism, with countless books, articles, and opinion pieces at least providing a paper trail of how its conclusions came about. Not so with fascism. It had no marks to create an intro for newbies to become familiar with the concepts. There was no fascist manifesto, unless you want to count Mein Kampf or Mussolini's autobiography. And, oh boy, you don't really want to do that. Mein Kampf is like... Dostoevsky's Diary of a Madman, but written by an actual madman, which is to say it's a tedious and rambling collection of musings that could have used an editor to burn the only copy of the first draft. Mussolini's autobiography is basically him just introducing himself to a foreign audience, and yes, he did feel the need to have a short book ghostwritten for him to do that. And these were the heavyweights, too, the most successful of the fascist leaders which, when I wrote that sentence out, I realized just how crummy an ideal system we're dealing with here. By and large, the rank-and-file of the the various fascist movements were painfully uninterested in fleshing out their ruling system into something coherent. I think Hermann Goering put it best when he said that when someone spoke of culture, he would reach for his revolver. And I'm pretty sure he wasn't the first guy to say that either, which reinforces the fact that we're not dealing with contemplatives here. That isn't really to put down those uninterested in running their own version of Das Kapital, though, only that it highlights the real challenge of defining the breakout belief system of this period. Fascists were terribly reluctant to define themselves. Their branding certainly didn't help either, as virtually every movement outside of Italy took a different name for their version. But hey, they never put a lot of effort into getting all this on record, so now people like me get to do it for them. Again, you'll have to forgive me if this occasionally comes off as rambling, but I will try to be as concise as I can when every nation can produce a unique strain of this ideology. And also, recognize that sometimes I will be speaking in terms of the ideal that fascists held themselves up to. Reality is always more complicated than ideals, but this particular episode is to define the ideals and goals of the fascist movement how well they actually achieved any of their goals, I will continue breaking down in exhaustive detail through this entire podcast. So, fascism, just what is it then? Broadly speaking, it's a collection of ideals defined by authoritarianism, nationalism, and a predisposition to violence. That last bit isn't a bit of snark. Action and violence is a core part of the movement's thought. But it can also be considered a revolutionary ideology as well, which sets it somewhat apart from the conservatism and reactionism that it usually follows on the political spectrum. So, too, is its populist appeal to all members of acceptable social groups. Emphasis on the word acceptable. Probably most importantly, fascism is supremely adaptable to local conditions found in whichever nation it starts up in. A fascist movement can easily emphasize one or two aspects of its common features over others, while at the same time even making use of seemingly contradictory policies in order to maximize its appeal in the short term. Let's first start by breaking down what fascism actually is not in order to get a better grasp on what it definitely is. Firstly, fascism is not a fully conservative or even a reactionary movement. That isn't to say both groups don't throw in with fascists, but bear with me. Conservatism back in the 20s and 30s is somewhat different than what we understand it to be in our liberal democracies today. The big missing piece back then versus now is the absence of a populist character in most conservative movements. Today, you can count on a conservative to present themselves as a normal, solid individualist who wants to reasonably uphold existing norms, or at least hearken back to norms within some not-too-distant time. Back then, though, they really didn't bother with the presentation part. They openly advocated that existing elites, typically members of a still-existent and even vibrant aristocratic class or maybe an old enough family rooted in the business world, should hold the reins of power at the highest levels of national life. There was also the familiar mantra that the government should be kept small at all times, not as an efficiency issue because they openly despised a vehicle that could democratically hijack their powers through the popular will and that could issue dictates to them as a group. Conservatives dislike government because at some point they held or continued to hold power by means outside it. They did not mythicize the common man as a modern conservative would, rather overtly calling for the rabble to be kept in their place. It was an upper-class section of the political spectrum through and through, with parts of the middle class also joining with them to try and maintain what material privileges they had managed to acquire. Finally, conservatives were also traditionalists. They sought to maintain the class-based order like it was a modern-day feudal system with them on top just now with factories and cars. The fascists, on the other hand, did not respect all aspects of this line of thought. They did worship the common man, albeit as long as he was an acceptable one. More on that later. The worker striving to build up the greatness of his nation, to raise a large and obedient family, was a central piece of propaganda. The trench soldier of World War I, too, not the aristocratic general, was a totem that the fascists worshipped at. And the other big contrast, the question of the government reaching into everyday life, never really sat well with the old elites. But but these contrasts are not so vast as you would imagine. In pretty much every example, including right-wing politics today, the baseline conservative is willing to trade their qualms about a totalitarian government in exchange for anti-democratic measures. As I said before, they are uh, are anti-government because they do not want a socialist administration to strip them of their status and privileges. With fascism, democracy is in practice eliminated, and thus the threat of left-wing reforms is eliminated as well. The aristocracy and business elites were also very effective in reaching an accommodation with the new regimes when they managed to come into power. The fascists were interested in advancing their perception of the natural interest to the fullest, but this was based on a conception of the nation as its own entity. Its own people would be subsumed to this national interest. As such, fascist regimes had little incentive to go about dismantling the upper class. Instead, as long as they were obedient to the new direction that the regime set out for them, the elites would get to keep their positions. And to top it off, the conservatives, finally got to attach themselves to a popular movement. You can see the lessons they picked up from the fascist ideology when they go on about the self-sacrificing and devoted worker who is too modest to ask for more than enough to get by and who conveniently shows deference to his social betters. That myth sprung from the balconies of Milan and the beer halls of Munich. Another thing that fascism is not would be socialist or communist. The true far-left proved to be the fiercest foe that could be faced, and every fascist re- regime went to great lengths to purge it from their countries. I'll go ahead and address what you might be earnestly or ironically thinking, what of the socialism in National Socialism. Well, it goes back to temporary expedients being used when grasping for a tactical advantage in politics. As many an empty politician learns to their chagrin, you actually have to sell people on something in order to achieve any measure of success in a democracy. And in a time of intense economic uncertainty and deep disparity between the haves and have-nots, it is very expedient to offer things like government-backed work programs and assistance. But ultimately, such efforts fall far short of socialism. As mentioned, when discussing the conservatives, the fascists did not strongly desire to remove the existing elites once they came to power, as long as the elites acquiesced to the new order. Whereas socialism sought to break down class boundaries and level a field for all, fascism sought the empowerment of the nation as an expression, an idea. If Germany or Italy or Japan was the most powerful nation on the planet, it would be acceptable that the general population's level of prosperity was much lower than you would imagine it to be. That's just a sacrifice for the enrichment of the nation as a whole. It was pitched, of course, as a temporary condition that would be rectified upon the fulfillment of national ambitions. Maybe. From the viewpoint of the nation as a whole, class struggle was, at best, a waste of energy, and at worst, a danger to the fabric of the nation. New to far-right movements is the revolutionary character of fascism, its stated drive to turn society upside down. Dare I say it seeks to move fast and break things at all times. The appeal of the ideology is that the normal political and social environment, whether conservative or liberal, has broken in some way and desperate action is needed in order to put things back together. Even in good times, you'll get some fringe movements in any given nation advocating that the status quo is busted, but usually you need a genuine crisis in order to destabilize a nation enough that the populace or the elites are both willing to throw in with a fascist movement when that happens, when enough of a country falls into a panic frenzy, and enough of another part is willing to quietly stand by, that's when they make their move. In Italy, this was allowed due to the government becoming increasingly ineffective in the immediate aftermath of World War I causing a loss of legitimacy in a short span, and the openness of the conservative elites in the north of Italy to join with the marching blackshirts and beating back the labor movements in the cities and countryside. In Japan, it was due to straightforward economic downturns and an increasingly nationalistic culture that rewarded an out-of-control military establishment. And in Germany? It came from a crippling depression and a conservative elite that detested democracy enough that they would throw power over to an ex-corporal, who they believed they could control. And once that status quo was breached, events typically moved quickly. Murder and violence was inflicted on political opponents. Tyrannical laws enhancing the control of the regime would be forced into effect with no regard for any uh, democratic process. The trick to it was to do it when there was already a crisis of some kind, and from there just keep moving too fast for anybody to be able to catch up. When the Nazis grabbed power in 1933, communists both in and out of Germany actually welcomed it. They correctly saw the Nazis as neophytes when it came to actually governing, and predicted that that inexperience would mean that they would be slow to implement meaningful change and once the initial euphoria of their success wore off, that lack of progress would be their downfall when the public turned against their unfulfilled promises. But what the communists failed to realize was just how quickly the Nazis would bring the nation they governed to heel. This brings us to probably the most familiar aspect of fascism, the one we think of when we invoke the name as an insult, the drive towards authoritarianism. We have already discussed why conservatives would acquiesce to a mode of government where the state was free to interfere in every aspect of life. But that does not entirely explain why the fascists were so fascinated with this ideal. To modern people, the idea of a totalitarian state seems kind of humdrum. There have been so many examples over the course of the past century to learn about, and more than a few still existing in modern day. With our lives so well documented by the internet, it seems a given that even in our neoliberal society, there are state and private interests keeping some measure of observation and control over us. But back in the 20s, a totalitarian state was something much more out of science fiction. Uh, Certainly, states had been oppressive before. uh, Censorship and secret police were common instruments in unfree societies. But up to this point, most nations had not grasped the full implications of things like instant communication and truly mass travel and the creation of vast bureaucracies. But then came the First World War. Never before had governments conscripted so many soldiers into the army, and to supply and maintain those record-setting armies, they reorganized their whole societies to fulfill that task. Even paragons of free enterprise like Great Britain assumed these controls, shifting the industries of the nation over to war. In Germany, the military dictatorship of Hindenburg and Ludendorff extended to pretty much all economic activity in Germany. In Italy, the shattering defeat at Caporetto caused a crisis that resulted in power being consolidated for a time in an emergency government, which managed to hold the nation together as armies of the central powers threatened Venice. But in the process of doing so, it directly bypassed national and local authorities in order to salvage the situation. All across Europe, soldiers fought and it became the purpose of the civilian to do everything to keep those soldiers fighting. War could not be ignored at home any longer, and everyone was somehow part of the struggle. These experiences left a mark on both civilian and military populations. A great door had been opened that could not be closed again. Not only was it possible to remove the line between soldier and civilian, it appeared to many as though that that was actually preferable. To the fascists, the greater success and glory of the nation, uh, whether how it appeared on a map or where it stood on an economic output chart, was all that mattered. Democracy was merely a distraction this envisioning. The most able-bodied would be military men first and foremost, and the civilians would be focused on increasing war production. This effort would be controlled and guided by the state with the full cooperation of the business and management classes. The nation would become like a fine watch, a series of gears moving in synchronization, with both the large and small ones doing their set part without question or fail. To a certain mindset back then, this was both new and glorious. This is also where fascists break with the old system of kings and aristocrats. The old monarchies certainly favored control and obedience, which, of course, meant they held an open contempt for democracy. But their calls for obedience came from an old set of of traditions, where they held legitimacy by birth, and that legitimacy kept them aloof from those beneath them. In return, they provided a stable, predictable society to live in, one where there was at least a kind of peace and justice to enjoy, if of an outmoded sort, of course. But with fascism there was no pretension towards things like legitimacy or tradition. They sneered at the naive concept of justice. The only legitimacy was the power of the state. The only justice was that which empowered and advanced the state. And the only traditions worth keeping were the ones that bound people closer to the state. The nation would function as a unit, and everything superfluous to this goal would be cast aside. To that end, there, of course, was the question of leadership, and removing any pretense of democracy, the fascist movements of the world instead turned to a single leader, in theory holding absolute power within the nation. They adopted the name leader in their native tongues. Führer, Duche, Caudillo, conductor all indicate a man who is set above all others, not by birth, not by God, but by sheer will. On some days, that is the will of the people, and on others, it is his own will but it is always usefully ambiguous. It is not really an official title of the nation they control. Mussolini was, strictly speaking, always a prime minister, and Hitler a chancellor, but the reality was always out the open and preferable to the compromised titles of a discarded liberalism. I mentioned before that these are ideals to be sought after, and the reality was always more complicated. It was no more so than when it came to the absolute dictator. In every case where a fascist came to power, the leader was not as absolute as the new order would have him appear. Each one would have to make their own accommodations with political and economic power centers. Part of why the fascist regimes were able to establish themselves and even hang on so long in the face of military disasters was the fact that they were by and large very flexible in their rule. And as long as the perceptions of absolute power were widely enough accepted, well. That was good enough on its own. I talked earlier about the blur between military and civilian life. The increased regimentation of all aspects of life falls quite nicely into the next aspect of fascism, militarization. Fascists really love war, and not even really a hard-fought, quasi-honorable one either. They just really wanted to beat up on people. It was a compulsion that proved impossible to resist and directly caused the destruction of each regime that embraced it. It is not inaccurate to say that fascism was born in the trenches of World War One. So many of the foot soldiers of that war had their brains so permanently broken that going back to a normal existence was probably impossible. They had been through horrors that could not have been imagined before they actually happened. And from that point on, they would be stuck in those trenches even with that war long over. They would seek out conflict, they would cling to camaraderie of their uniformed fellows, and they would strike out against a world they no longer identified with, one they now considered weak and feckless. Now, to be sure, this was not the case of all the demobilized armies of Europe and was probably a sad minority. But they were enough that, when banded together, would be enough of a disruptive force to pave the way to a new and much more violent future. This cult of the soldier was a core feature of fascist life. The fighting man was the ideal to be aspired to by the entire population. The soldier was physically fit, brave, in the face of danger, and ideally committed to the political ideals of the state. War was always around the corner in fascist life. Italy had its adventures in Africa and the Balkans. Germany looked greedily to its eastern frontiers, and Japan saw China and eventually the whole of Southeast Asia as destined additions to its empire. There would would be fighting, there would be killing, and there would be death. In fighting, the fascist soldier would prove his masculinity and manliness in opposition to the fecklessness of modern society. In killing, the soldier would erase whatever fighting strength could be found in the enemy that he faced. Proving the fatherland's supremacy, and in dying he would make an ultimate sacrifice to the state he served, setting an example to those who would come after him that no price would be too high when it came to national glory. These messages were hammered home relentlessly and found special reception among the youths of the re- of the affected nations. We are all too familiar with the notorious Hitler Youth, but such groups were found in pretty much every fascist nation or at least subversions of traditional youth groups. Whereas in other nations, such movements promote outdoorsmanship. The fascist variants promoted lessons of loyalty towards the state, and impressed upon each participant that their future would be directed towards serving the greater nation. They would be organized and commanded along military lines with the explicit agenda that they were to be trained to serve the state. Although never put into full practice, another long-term goal of such groups would be to gradually dissolve the family unit as it functioned previously, instead placing the youths totally at the disposal of the nation. Adult civilians, too, would see the regimentation of their lives increase. Partly this was due to economic factors being addressed with an authoritarian solution. A lack of available private employment meant that many would join labor groups set up by the government. Oftentimes, these groups were put to work on public works or expanding military infrastructure during the years of rearmament. These workers would be sorted into units almost like military formations, in contrast to more conventional work crews found with civilian companies. Much of the economic growth that would come about during the fascist heyday of the 30s would not come about through normal consumer industries, but rather through military production. A byproduct of this increased regimentation would also be the elimination of undesirables or those who refused to conform to the new order. Once the state became absolute and the national narrative established, deviation from this opened you up to all manners of punishment. Many chose exile from their homelands, others were ostracized, countless more were rounded up and imprisoned or executed. Again, Nazi Germany has some of the most extreme examples, with any member of society not fitting the national ideal, sooner or later being preyed upon. With all this militarization and calls to serve the nation, coupled with vast expenditures on weapons production, there of course would need to be an outlet for all this frantic energy. And that would mean that there would need to be enemies to combat. This is where fascism gets a bit tricky, because there is more than one way to secure a national enemy. The most famous example of seeking out enemies was in Nazi Germany. Their mad racial hierarchy made a vast majority of the human population fair game for conquest and eventually extermination, which undoubtedly made it the most extreme case among all the fascist regimes. Its hatred of Jews, Slavs, and non-whites of all kinds set it apart from the other groups and just how many enemies they chose to keep. The Italians were a bit milder, not so much focusing on racial hatreds, but rather on what enemies they had at any given moment. The Libyans and Ethiopians were the most attacked by virtue of being national enemies and non-whites, while South Slavs and Greeks of the Balkans weren't so much inferior by blood, but because they lacked the Italians' culture. Japan was similar in this, as there wasn't a specific racial component based on bloodlines, but rather their culture was the only native one not to only hold out independently in East Asia, but also become a great power in their own right. And with proper enemies created, these regimes can now focus on what they probably really wanted all along – expansion. Most states that adopted fascism either missed the boat on establishing a global presence, or were kicked a couple pegs down sometime in recent memory. And given this time period's economic uncertainty, there was an intense drive to acquire resources for national survival. Italy, for example, had next to no national resources in its homeland, and while its African colonies were unproductive, there had to at least be attempts at expanding its economic horizons. Germany, of course, famously modeled its Lebensraum campaign after similar efforts in the American West, although this time the subjugated natives would not be the tribes of the First Nations, but rather peoples and nations that had bordered and interacted with Germany for centuries. Japan would try its hand at imperialism right at the time when such adventures had finally fallen out of fashion. Smaller regimes, like when The Iron Guard came to power in Romania, did so after the nation had suffered severe territorial losses in the chaos following the fall of France. Even smaller states, like Slovakia and Croatia, would keep their dreams tiny, but that would also be because they were born under German patronage and were never truly independent. Now, with all these characteristics laid out, who can we call a fascist in this timeline? Germany is probably the most extreme among all these examples. Their commitment to expansion, their devotion to violence, and their paranoid worldview firmly plant them at the apex of the fascist ideal. Italy certainly is up there, but their state made many compromises that limited just how totalitarian they could be, although they certainly aspired to it enough. They lacked Germany's racial hate, but made up for it through sheer ambition given just how limited their resources were in which to carry it out. And much of the language that Germany would pick up was created by the Italians through the 20s. Japan, many would argue, was not really a fascist regime, that it was more of a military junta. This is backed up as most within the Japanese leadership did not really have the revolutionary zeal of the European movements. But I would consider that that by pointing out that they, too, upended a liberal regime that they detested in order to create a militarized order based on traditional, even mythical, national values in order to carve out an expansionist empire. And while you'd be hard-pressed to put Emperor Hirohito in the same league of totalitarian leaders as Hitler and Mussolini, he possessed more influence than he was given credit for, and the expansion of his nation was perfectly in line with his personal ambitions for the country. The smaller states of the world present a complex picture. Uh, Franco's regime in Spain, for example, up until the end of World War II, certainly flirted with the fascist ideals, but upon the defeat of the Axis, he made moves to base his regime on older, more conservative ideals based on traditional social orders. There would be no exhortations to militarize society or forge a completely totalitarian regime. Austria would have its own fascist government starting in the early 30s, which would provide a groundwork for its eventual incorporation into Germany. Romania, as mentioned earlier, would embrace fascism to regain its borders, as would Hungary in the aftermath of its post-World War I dismemberment. Larger nations like the UK and France would have their own domestic movements, but would prove resistant due to the absence of a true crisis as suffered by other countries, which I might cover in the future to provide a picture of what happens when fascism fails to take root. All that is the gist of what fascism is and what you can expect from it in the episodes to come. Hopefully, this will give, help give you a clearer idea of the ideas behind it, as in the next set of episodes we are going to get into the national histories in the decade uh, following World War I. So, join me next week as we get into the first nation that I'll be putting the spotlight on. In this case, the first of the fascist nations, Italy. As always, thank you for listening.